how do you know someone is who they say they are? How do you know that the person next to you, or in front of you, or behind you, really is who they've told you that they are? Believe it or not, when I was at university, I met someone, I knew someone really quite well, who was a compulsive liar. And uh, when they got to university, you know, you've got your sort of chance to tell everybody where you're from, what you've done, all those sorts of things. I had a friend who made up a large chunk of her history. She made up uh, things like where she was from, what she'd done, where she'd been. It was really, really strange because it took quite a while. It took almost a year, well, just over a year to work out that so many of the details she told us about herself were actually wrong. It sometimes can take a bit of time, can't it? But in the end, we worked out what was going on. It all sort of fell down and she had to leave uni and go back home. I never quite worked out where home was, uh, really, after all that. But I wonder if you've ever had an experience like that. Well, Mark started off his gospel last time by telling us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He started off by telling us who he is. But how do we know that he's telling the truth. After all, what evidence does he have to back up such monumental claims? After all, this was a carpenter's son from Nazareth. He wasn't a prince, he wasn't a baron, he wasn't a lord. He was from Nazareth. That's like the Slough or Romford of ancient Israel. No, no offence to anybody from Slough or Romford or anyone watching at home. But it... You know, the only thing really Nazareth had going for us was that it was in the north. Really, that was the only good thing about Nazareth. But how could this be? How could this Jesus of Nazareth really be the Christ, the son of the living God? How was he going to back up this massive claim? Well, enter John the Baptist. We said last time that John the Baptist was a great prophet. So great, in fact, that other prophets had prophesied about him. He was the prophet's prophet, if you like. A New Testament Elijah that was to come. One who was prophesied to return before the great day of the Lord. One who would turn the hearts of the people back to their God. One who would prepare the way for God himself to come and visit his people. So the tension's been ramped up in Mark's Gospel so far. He's been making us think, what is going to happen next? And so our first point John the prophet anoints God's special king. Have a look with me again at verse 9. I'll read it to us. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. When we understand John as a prophet, and when we understand Jesus as the coming king that God had promised, Jesus' baptism begins to make sense. After all, haven't we read already that baptism was supposed to be about repentance? But Jesus, as we'll see as we go through Mark, had nothing to repent of, did he? Matthew gives us a bit more of an explanation, as it being about righteousness fulfilled. But Mark is just content to leave it there. Because John is a prophet. And one of the prophet's jobs was to anoint people. That's what prophets did including kings. They were the ones who anointed kings. So listen to God's to-do list that he gives the prophet Elijah. Do you remember John is supposed to be like before he's taken up in a whirlwind? 1 Kings 19, 15 and 16, it's on the back of your notice sheet. 
1 Kings 19, 15 and 16. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael, king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shephat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. You see, a prophet was an anointer. That was one of the things that they did. Samuel, the prophet, does the same with King Saul. He anoints King Saul, and he anoints King David. A prophet anoints a king. And here we see John, the prophet, anoint Jesus, the king. If Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ, because that's what the word Christ means, anointed one, then humanly speaking, this is his anointing. This is his pre-coronation, so to speak. He won't wear the crown until actually he reaches the cross, will he? The crown of thorns. But just as David was anointed years before he took the throne, so Jesus is anointed years before he would take his as he dies on the cross. And this is why this story is so prominent in the Gospels. It's one of the few accounts that actually appears in all four Gospels. Mark starts his account here, doesn't he? He doesn't tell us anything about Jesus before. He starts it at Jesus' baptism. Because if Mark is talking about the anointed one, well, this is where he was anointed. Now, that is not to say that Jesus was not God before his baptism. He was. It's not to say that he was not God's son before his baptism. He was. In fact, the whole point of the quotes that we've just had last week in the Old Testament were that God is coming. Jesus was already God. But here is where Jesus is declared king. This is where he's set aside publicly as Christ. This is like the opening ceremony to his ministry. And John, this great prophet that we read about last time, is merely the warmer pact to Jesus. That's all he's here for. John, as great as he was, was there to anoint someone greater. But even John, as great as he was, is not the greatest to attest to what's going on. So our second point, the Holy Spirit anoints God's special king. Have a look at verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. The Holy Spirit comes down in physical form on Jesus as a dove. Jesus here is anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, if you're not familiar with him, is one of the three members of the Trinity. In other words, the Holy Spirit is God, like the Father is God, like Jesus is God. He's not just a force or a feeling, he's a person. In the Old Testament, there's a section of a book called Isaiah, in fact, it was quoted in, in verse 2, that speaks of a servant who will come and suffer for his people. And the Holy Spirit plays a massive role in his ministry. This is what it says in that section, Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Do you see that this servant who is to come and suffer is anointed. The Holy Spirit stays on him, is given to him. Jesus himself quotes this passage in Luke and says that it's about him. So this is what Jesus thinks about himself. The one who is anointed by the Spirit, who brings good news, gospel, same word. Who opens the eyes of the blind, we're going to see that too. Who proclaims liberty and freedom who rescues those in darkness and brings joy where there had only been mourning. Jesus is that promised one, that spirit-anointed servant. The strange thing, though, if you think about it, is that John hadn't talked about one who would be anointed with the spirit, had he? What John talked about was one who would come and give the spirit to others, who would baptise others with the spirit, so if you look back at verse 8, I have baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus receives the Holy Spirit as a man that he may grant it to others, grant, sorry, grant him to others, this gift. And the pattern that Jesus sets as a spirit-filled man will be the pattern for his spirit-filled people. He is the beginning, the first fruits, the founder of the spirit-filled people. In the Bible, the spirit is associated with the beginning and the end of the world. So the beginning, if you think about it back in Genesis 1, he's there floating above the waters of chaos as the world is about to be made. The language Mark gives us is how the spirit descends, not what he looks like. So he descends as a dove. The other Gospels do tell us that the Holy Spirit looked like a dove, took on the form of a dove. But Mark tells us about his descent, his coming down like a dove, his floating. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. But here now he hovers not above the world, but above a man. Jesus, the beginning of a new creation. Jesus, a new start for humanity. Which also points us to the end, doesn't it? In the Old Testament, the Spirit was supposed to be poured out on mankind at the end. That's one of the things that's prophesied about him. But here, the end of time breaks in. The new creation begins early, if you like, in Jesus, as the Spirit rests on him. And he will grant the Spirit to his people and continue that new creation ahead of time, so to speak. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We are the beginning of that new people. And as the Spirit attests that Jesus is the Son of God, so now the Spirit does the same in believers. Again and again, the Bible links the fact that we are now children of God with the Holy Spirit. So Galatians 4, verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
or Romans 8, 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. As with Jesus, attesting to his sonship, so with us. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does. But the big thing we need to understand here is that Jesus is not just anointed with water, he's anointed with the Spirit. He is that servant that the Old Testament talked about, who would preach, who would heal, who would care, and who would die for his people. We'll see more of that in our third point, our third point this morning. God the Father accredits his Son as special king. Have a look at verse 11. And a voice came down from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Have you ever had to give references for a job? This is something I've had to start doing over the last few years. You know, when, when I was sort of early on, I was always asking other people to do references. And now people ask me to give references for them. Occasionally I've had people that I barely know or people who sort of got in touch with me after years I haven't seen them, and they say, oh, can we have a reference? And I sort of think, wow, they're really scraping the barrel, aren't they? <laughs> you know what I mean? I haven't seen you in ten years. Why are you asking me for a reference? But Jesus does not have to scrape the barrel for good references, does he? Not only does Jesus have John, the prophet's prophet, not only does he have the Holy Spirit, but he has God the Father as well, to give him a reference, if you like. God the Father says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, it's not saying there that God is a Yorkshireman. I've heard that, you know, he's well pleased. You know what we do in Yorkshire? It's not saying that. But it is answering that big question that we raised last week. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God's son. Not only did Jesus say it, God the Father said it too. And we read in the other Gospels that others heard what was said by God the Father. But interestingly here, you notice that it's addressed to Jesus. You are my son. And Mark only tells us that Jesus heard it. This is something for Jesus, for his strengthening. It's to prepare him for the mission ahead, to sustain and encourage him on what's about to come. And do you notice then that we see all three members of the Trinity here, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, all active in Jesus' baptism. Evidence, if you needed it, that God does not just express himself in different ways. You know, sometimes God the Father, sometimes God the Son, sometimes God the Holy Spirit. But that actually is all three persons, all the time. It's not just he appears to be one sometimes and appears to be one the other. That's a big point, but it's not really the point of our passage. It's a bit of digression, but it's worth noting. But God the Father here attests to who Jesus is. And in doing so, he brings to mind three passages of scripture as he speaks. God quotes himself here, if you like, three times. But I guess who else better to quote? If you've got us, who are you going to quote to as an authority? The first part of the quote is from Psalm 2. So Psalm 2, 6 and 7. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, 
and the ends of the earth your possession. The son in that passage is also called the anointed, the Christ, in verse 2. The special king who here would rule the whole earth. That's what he's talking about when he says, you are my son. The second part is from another one of those servant songs from Isaiah. I think Mark must really like them. He keeps sort of using them all the way through, but God here uses it. Listen to how well this fits with what's going on. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 3, and then 6 to 7. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench until he faithfully brings forth justice. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Again, remember, this servant from Isaiah is the one who will come and die for his people. And then the last one, just dropped in there in the middle, that phrase, beloved son, doesn't just say, you are my son, he says, you are my beloved son. And that comes from Genesis 22. Genesis 22, 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said to him, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The phrase there literally in the original is take your beloved son whom you love. Same word, beloved son whom you love, intensifying it. It's speaking of Abraham being asked to give Isaac, his son, as a sacrifice. The angel uses the same word when they stop Abraham from giving the sacrifice. He says, you have not beheld your, withheld your beloved son. And we're going to see in Mark that God the Father does not withhold his beloved son. It's a wonderful, chilling reminder of what is to come. This father offering up his beloved son as the servant who will die for his people at the hands of the raging nations from Psalm 2. There's a lot more going on, isn't there, as we see God speak. A lot more going on than we think. More clues to Jesus' identity and what is coming in Mark's Gospel. But it also gives us clues to our own. That's, this is our last point this morning. The Holy Spirit leads God's Son into suffering. Have a look at verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Sometimes on a Sunday morning or during the week when I meet people, I get asked if we're a spirit-led church. Or I get told that, you know, well, what is someone looking for? They're looking for a spirit-led church. But where here does the spirit lead? Well, he leads us to Christ first, doesn't he? That's what he was doing as he shows us who Christ is, his role highlighting Jesus with the dove. But the second thing that we see is that the spirit leads us into suffering, into battle. 
Mark gives us a very, very brief account of Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. But the picture that he paints is of suffering, yet sustaining. There are dangerous wild animals there, yet there are also angels sustaining him. Puts you to mind, doesn't it, of Daniel in the lion's den. They were termed as wild animals, yet the angel is there, stopping the lion's mouths. God doesn't take away the lions, and Daniel must rely on the angel to close their mouths. And I think that's a bit of what's going on here. Only Mark here mentions the wild animals, the other Gospels don't. The Spirit leads Jesus through trials. He takes on the devil. And again, the other accounts give you more details, don't they? They tell you about the temptation that the devil brings. But Mark just tells you that it's Satan. He's faced temptation with Satan. Now, there's all sorts of stories in the Bible with wild animals and Satan, and think back to Adam and temptation there, or think about the 40 days in the wilderness with the Israelites who were tempted there, the 40 linking it together. All are to do with battling temptation. Now, I was going to have a section here on how Jesus is victorious, where the other ones fail. And that certainly is part of what's going on. The other Gospels make that really clear, that Jesus is victorious. But the more I thought about it over the last couple of days, the more I've realised that actually Mark doesn't tell us that. It's one of those things you read in. He just tells you he was tempted by Satan. He doesn't speak of his victory. He just tells you of the trial. He tells you of the suffering. That's what the Spirit is doing. So Jesus is victorious. Again, we know that from the other Gospels. But the emphasis for Mark is the trouble, is the trial. The Spirit leads him into trials, into battle, into suffering. But he also sustains him through them. Now, there are some Christians who teach that, you know, the Spirit's presence in our life will result in a life of ease. That, you know, if you just give your life to the Spirit, if you just surrender to him, that all your struggles will be over. But that's not it at all, is it? The Spirit doesn't help us escape our troubles, our trials and our temptations. But he helps us through them. He uses them to strengthen us, to prepare us for ministry. Just like he does here with Jesus. He leads him into suffering. That he might... <coughs> carry on with his ministry, that he might be ready for what is coming. I mean, think about it. This is how Jesus' ministry starts. This is the first thing that happens. He goes into the wilderness. And you might be thinking, well, that's a bit of a waste, isn't it? He only has three years of ministry, and he spends the first 40 days of them alone in the wilderness. But it's preparing him, preparing him for the ministry that's to come. Strengthening him through this suffering. The Spirit led him there. Literally thrust him there. It's the same word that's used when Jesus casts out demons. It's almost like he threw him into the wilderness. But he did it to prepare him for what was to follow. And to set this pattern for the Spirit-filled people. You see, a Spirit-filled people are not marked by success after success. But by suffering. And being sustained and surviving through suffering and temptation. Being dependent on that supernatural help to keep going. So if you want to find a spirit-led church, then find a church where people are suffering, but still trusting in Jesus. 
despite all that. Where people are taking sin seriously and battling temptation. Because that is where the Spirit leads. We follow in Christ's footsteps as his Spirit-filled people. We walk the same road of suffering and battling temptation. So it's not, as some Christians teach, that we struggle and then, you know, our struggle will be over in this life. No, the Spirit leads us into struggle, but he sustains us in the struggle. So if you find the Christian life hard, that is normal. Because we follow a suffering saviour. The Spirit leads us into battle, which is hard. But God also provides supernatural help in that battle. And that means that as we live the Christian life, we don't have to be pretending that we're someone that we're not. That we're not struggling. I don't mean like my friend who made up her past and all that sort of stuff. But I mean those who make up their present. Who hide their struggles for fear that it makes them a lesser Christian. You don't speak of their temptations and trials for fear that actually everybody else is fine. It's just me that's going through it. But all of us, every Christian, follows the path of the cross. We all face struggles, trials and temptations. And pretending that nobody, that we don't, does nobody any good. Pretending didn't do my friend any good, did it? And yet if we're a Christian... We think it's okay to hide that, don't we, sometimes? Sometimes uh, at church there could be a pressure, even if you're not a believer yet, to sort of just fit in with what's going on. But it's okay to say where you are with God, because all of us are on that same road. No one's going to shout at you or be upset or let down. We all actually need to be honest about where we are on the road, don't we? All of us are in that wilderness, in a way. So let's trust what Mark says about Jesus, that Jesus is God's special king, his son, his suffering servant. Let's believe the testimony of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And let's trust in that sacrifice that this is pointing to, that he made, that's applied by the Spirit into us, so that we may walk the way of the cross. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that when he came into this world, he didn't sit in palaces. Father, he didn't ignore suffering, but Father, he faced temptation. He faced trials. He faced danger. Father, help us in the same sorts of situations, Father, to look to you for help. Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit you would sustain us through those things. Help us, Father, as we speak to one another. Father, may we be of help to one another in the struggles. Help us not to hide where we are and how we're struggling or, or what's going on, but Father, help us to be honest, knowing that actually all of us are going through struggles and trials and temptations, and that is normal. So help us this week, Father, sustain as we pray, because of your Son, the Lord Jesus, our, our Saviour and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.